You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. On today's episode, we talk about the sixth theme of the alternative orthodoxy, which is the path of descent is the path of transformation. Darkness, failure, relapse, death, and woundedness are our primary teachers rather than ideas or doctrines. And this theme really helps because it, it builds off the previous one as we've kind of seen that continue to unfold as we've been discussing these. How does this theme land for you, Brie, when you think of the path of descent? I really wish this one wasn't true. Mm. <laughs> but it's interesting because I think about the fact that heartbreak and creativity, I know it's almost cliche, but heartbreak and creativity go together. Mm-hmm. That it makes sense then to me that failure, relapse, death, woundedness, mistakes are our primary teachers of transformation. They go together. There's something about the breaking down and breaking open that allows us to see differently Mm -hmm. and connect to each other differently. Yeah, I I love the way that powerlessness was brought into this conversation as it's in those vulnerable states that we're not only able to be more connected to ourselves and to God, but to one another and really see that we are all in this together. Richard models this so well because he he lives out of that you know radical vulnerability mm. and humility i mean how many times have we sat here in the recordings and he just openly admits to like yeah i'm really terrible at this or i do this thing or i'm so proud and i i you know I, i'm still doing this at yes, my age yeah yes so i i love the invitation in this episode for us to live into this radical vulnerability this humble heart that can embrace the failures that can embrace the mistakes that can embrace not being perfect. But also one of the things that came up in this episode that I I really enjoyed is that we talked a lot about identification, like to not get stuck there, to not identify overly with the story that we create when we do make a mistake or when there is a failure or a loss and instead to allow it to move us into transformation and not knowing. So there came up that what came up was that that role of unknowing and not knowing yeah. even in this tenet of the path of descent. To not yeah, to not get stuck in that storyline or that that narrative that we have been telling ourselves over and over again, but to allow that unknowing to lead us in a sense of willingness to where we are being drawn to, where are we being led. Yeah, we also were exploring the fact that for our consumeristic culture, mm. this is like this is nonsensical, right? Like, yep. don't tell me that the path of descent is the, the right one because we live in a culture and, and even in our world where everything is about ascent and gaining and attaining and succeeding. So this is, I mean, this is a real humiliation of the ego, right? To live into this. And we found that the path of ascent has often been part of what we've been taught in Christianity. Oh, for sure. That this path of perfection, this, this path of, of doing more, of getting more, of getting more from God. And it, as we talk about in this conversation, it is almost the opposite of what Jesus was teaching. Mm -hmm. So with that, we hope you'll enjoy this episode as much as you can when the topic is about descent on the sixth theme of the alternative orthodoxy. I hope you're you're all ready for this real downer. (laughs) Downer. Do you see what I did there? Well played. Today's episode, we're exploring the sixth theme of the alternative orthodoxy, which is the path of descent is the path of transformation. Darkness, failure, relapse, death, and woundedness are our primary teachers, rather than ideas or doctrines. Paul, do you have any uh, stories or experiences that match up with this? Gosh, I can can feel my heart racing right now. (laughs) This story is, is my big path of descent story in my journey. When I was in college, again, going through the heat of deconstruction, and it was also during the time of the building towards the Iraq war, and I was getting more politically active in like the peace movement in Chicago. And so I could just feel myself in this time just taking on more and more darkness in a way. I was on the train in Chicago, and I saw these three young hip-hop artists, and they were freestyle rapping about the war and what it was like to be a black man in America. And it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And I just Mm. felt myself take on the despair of the world and feel like I'm going to put this on my back and I'm going to fix it. It's my job to do alone. 
And as we've talked about before, like putting the burden of sin on yourself is not yours to do. It's, it's a collective. But I did my best to put it all on me. And in that despair, sad to say, I went out and bought a bottle of bourbon as a way to try to escape from what I sure. was feeling, this darkness. Sure. And the next thing I remember is I woke up in the hospital. And really? my brother was holding my hand. I opened my eyes. There he is holding my hand. I, can't, I don't know if he's crying or praying or both. And I closed my eyes because I'm like, I have got to wake up from this dream. This is scary. And then I fell back asleep and I woke up with... The doctor took the catheter out, which is a very memorable moment. (laughs) And I just remember I was unable to speak. I was just so dehydrated. And the doctor's like, why did you try to kill yourself? Oh, my goodness. And I said, I I didn't. I wasn't trying to, but I couldn't speak because my voice was so dry. And he's just like, just another college student, you know, partying too hard. And I couldn't get the words out. Mm. And so I went through this very dark season of depression, despair, not knowing what had happened, how I had come to this point. And thankfully, I, my, my brother was in seminary just down the street, so he was an amazing aide. And I talked to pastors and therapists trying to figure out, like, how did I get to this point? And I just couldn't get out of this deep, dark funk. Mm. So for months and months, I was living like this, just seeking answers, crying out to God, like, where are you? Where are you? And then months later, I was taking a test of all things, and I heard a voice from within saying, I love you just as you are. It's not up to you. And so I quickly finished the test. I'm sure it looked like I knew what I was doing, but I'm sure I bombed that test. And I ran back to my apartment and just started writing in my journal just over and over again. This voice got louder and louder and clearer and clearer of, I love you just as you are. It's not up to you. And it was this renewal of not trying to do it perfect anymore, but I needed to go through that. I mean, I don't wish that on anyone. It was a terrible sure. season of my life. Sure. But it was that path of descent of going to my lowest low oh, and then yeah. having God speak to me and just say, I love you just as you are. Oh. And through that relationship and that intimate moment with, with God speaking to me like that and through a community of friends and support, I was able to fully feel that that love. And it, it spurred and energized me in a way where I was able to see kind of what you're talking about, I'm just one part of the body. It's not just up to me. And that my role is to show up in love and receive love and give love. It was a turnkey moment in my own journey of how I looked at my supposed sense of perfection and what woundedness could teach me and despair could teach me and has made me a lot more honest with myself in my life about where I'm at and how I cannot fix this absurd world, but I can show up and do my small piece. So that was a big path of descent moment for me. But it lasted a while, a few months, years? months. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And that falling into God was a complete surprise. No. I I know I was crying out, working towards some sort of sense of healing, some sort of sense of of newness. And I do love that it came when I was taking a test, you know, of all places, you know, here I am trying to Mm. get a good grade and all of a sudden just awash with the love of God. And wow, what a new, what a new life after that. It wasn't, you know, from point A to point B, but there was a lot of zigzags and a lot of inner work in that process too. So it wasn't like some miraculous moment, but it was, it was God really, I was able to hear that whatever was obscuring me from seeing how I was participating in God and God was participating in me was revealed in that moment. Yes. Can I ask, yeah. when you were there, did you find yourself, and you don't have to agree, returning to almost a simple childlike understanding of your Christian faith? Yes. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. so simple and so beautiful. And, uh-huh. I, yeah. and I didn't feel the need to, to have to Explain everything, yep. or you're just grabbing on. It's the truth of the shipwrecked again. Yes. You were shipwrecked. And any log you can grab onto, and those are usually the ones you were given as a little girl, little boy. That's why we've got to give that to our kids, because they're going to face such moments. Mm. And sophisticated theology is not helpful at mm. that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
How about you two, Brie or Richard's story come to mind about the path of descent? Yeah. First, I, I just want to thank you for sharing that story, Paul, because in it was such vulnerability, but in it, how you talk about the time, how long it takes, mm. that oftentimes being in that state, we try to rush through and rush out of it, and we're not comfortable being mm. in those spaces, and then we miss the opportunity to experience ourselves as transformed or hear that voice, that inner voice. Mm. So, you know, and you just brought up parenting, Richard. What came to my mind when I thought about this is is where I currently am with my son, Soren, who's 10. And he's, I mean, first of all, nobody told me that puberty starts so early. Like nobody warned me that there were <laughs> going to be really strong feelings at 10 that mm. were going to come out. But, you know, I'm watching him go through these these experiences where hormones are just rushing through him and he doesn't know what to do with it. So he's having these kind of like angry outbursts, mm. like just really small things, just just really angry and just kind of storms up to his room. And what I've started to do is to just, I just go up with him, go up to his room and then I sit down with him and I let him rage and I let him fury and mm. I let him have all that out and just sit there and I sit there with him. And sometimes I'll ask him, you know, would you like me to sit next to you? Would you like me to hold your hand? I'm so sorry that this experience is so uncomfortable. I can see that your your brain is trying to process a lot of stuff. It's okay that you feel these things. You know, mm. and I'm doing all these things and I'm realizing in that experience of failure, quote unquote failure, like what my parents, and of course I don't fault them for this, they would have just been like, this is wrong. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> You're having these outbursts. Unacceptable. Like, how dare you? Exactly, this is unacceptable. When I move into that space with him, and I don't say to him that it's unacceptable. He's beginning to learn how to deal with those strong emotions, mm -hmm. how to calm down, how to welcome them in, how to not just dismiss them. And so it's becoming an opportunity for him to learn something valuable, but it's also teaching me about love, that love sits with, that love moves into, that love doesn't say, cut it out, yeah. that love is willing to hold space and take the time to go and sit and be with. And yet it's so hard for me to turn that kind of love on myself. I can do mm. it for my son mm. all day long. But for me to imagine that when I am raging, when I'm heartbroken and wearing sweatpants for weeks on end, you know, like when I'm when I'm really miserable and sad, when I'm going through those those times of darkness, to think that somehow I'm still lovable in mm. that, that God is sitting with me. Like you said, the voice that you heard, I love you just as you are. Ah, that is, it's so much harder to accept this ourselves, Richard, than, than it is to offer it's it to true. each other. Yeah. I don't know if you both feel that way, but. Definitely. You know, the one that comes to mind is not that profound, but uh, again, has to do with my terrible one energy. When you're, you're first growing up, being a good boy, doing it right, you don't realize it's just to make everybody love you. And it worked for me. My mother loved me, my daddy loved me, and the gooder I was, the more I got affirmation. Mm. And it carried over to the school. All the nuns loved Dickie Roar, you know, because I'd stay after, oh, I must have been obnoxious, you know, <laughs> uh, erasing the boards for sister. I've gone back and given retreat at the mother house, the ones that are still alive, and they say, oh, you were, you were just, you were the cutest little thing you always <laughs> did. <laughs> and it was only when I got older and began to take charge of my own life outside of that initial system that my pushiness to be in control and to be right started to show itself as a vice instead of a virtue. I remember when my own godmother, my Aunt Helen, I was playing with the cousins. My cousin Donnie said, Dickie, you always need to be in, no, he didn't say control. You always need to be in charge or something like that. Mm. I said, I do not. <laughs> then when my godmother, my Aunt Helen, walked into the room and she says, Dickie, it's true. You usually you're in control. Oh, it was just a stab in the heart. That an adult, my game was not working. First for a cousin and then my godmother. I didn't forget that for days that even she said they were right. 
and but how many years it took to and I got all the way through the seminary then still getting love by being supposedly perfect getting admiration by doing it right and it was such a descent to see the phoniness of all that. The I don't think I began to really get free from it till after ordination in 1970, when I didn't have a, a system to please. I could now do my own thing. In fact, I was in charge in almost every context I was in since then. So that's when I started needing a spiritual director. I started needing a therapist to help me make this transition out of good boy to not gooder than anybody else. Hmm. And that felt like descent. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I know this is overlapping from the previous theme, but it was, it was some years of near self-hatred which, again, one is very prone to. When you think you're, you're not perfect, how could you be lovable? Why would any? If yes. anybody saw in me what I've now seen in me, no one would like me. Mm. Yes. So the temptation for the disguise to go even deeper is stronger. I and mean, it was 20 years of more and more subtle shadow boxing which was the spiritual journey did not feel, it didn't feel beautiful. It didn't feel graceful. Now, of course, that was the charismatic period too, where we could raise our hands and sing in tongues. And, but even that felt often like a covering of my real feelings to move into a somewhat pseudo ecstasy and pretend that I had earned that. Somehow it always had to be a matter of earning worthiness, doing it right, even praying in tongues right, or <laughs> preaching right. My very gifts of teaching and preaching had to be done right, or I did not have the favor of God. It's building on what you were saying. That sounds like no suffering, but it's an interior suffering that's even more subtle. And I'd say in various forms that's continued till my old age. It isn't so true anymore, but I'm so much happier when I don't have to fight that battle mm. of image and reality, image and reality. But it was a path of downward movement of You've heard me quote Jung again. My pilgrim's progress has been this, to slowly, slowly, was it descend? I'm trying to remember the quote. You shouldn't give quotes, Richard, unless you're going to remember them. <laughs> uh, Till I could reach out the hand of friendship to this little clod of earth that I am. Mm. Slowly go downward till I could reach out the hand of friendship to this little clod of earth that I am. Ooh, I like that. Mm. But what's Jesus' word for that, or at least the word we apply to, is the way of the cross. Yeah. Which we literally, physically had on the walls of all of our churches. Yeah. The way of the cross in cultures that were totally preoccupied with climbing upwards. <laughs> well, it, this is what, uh, it seems like we've even, we turned Christianity, which was, which you help us understand, Richard, is all about the path of descent. Really is, is all about moving in and down and into reaching no. the hand of friendship to even this and even that and even this part of ourselves and even with each other and that sacramentalizes, is that a word? Reality. Yes, anoints reality itself as Christic. Hmm. But our tradition turned it into a path of ascent. It turned that's it into right. perfectionism. You have to put it that way, yes. And that's the, the very perfectionism that I hear kind of as a thread in each of our stories, mm. is that that lens got placed in all of us in different ways, but mm. I think so many of us struggle mm. with it because Christianity almost seems to perpetuate that idea of perfectionism, yes. as opposed to this version of Christianity, which right. is about incarnation mm. and embracing it. No, but just to say it directly, we turn the path of descent into a path of ascent. 
And Ken Wilber, who doesn't identify as a Christian, says the same thing. There are ascending religions about purity codes and moral behavior and enlightenment, and there are path descending religions, which are about letting go, learning from suffering, And in more than one place, he says, it seems to me as an outsider that Jesus intended his followers to descend, Mm. but that most of their history has been trying to ascend. Mm. Golden crucifixes and all the rest. Richard, knowing that you're a little further down the journey than us, as you've experienced different failures and disappointments, are you able, as you've continued on the journey, been able to see them as teachers in that despair, has that become an easier thing to... It's certainly become easier, but it's also in some ways become harder Hmm. because of all the ideal images people have projected onto me, Hmm. that I feel I have to live up to being this holy old man or this humble old man. or As you've heard it said very often, it's lonely at the top because you carry so many projections, both positive and negative. People project all kind of things onto you. Well, you're an absolute idiot because I've seen through your shadow and disguise, and you know they're half right. Do you understand Mm. that? (laughs) That I'm not this holy old man. Your balloon is punctured regularly. So it doesn't decrease, I don't think. And that people think I can talk about anything. Here we are doing it right now. You're, you're feeding my compulsion. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's dangerous. The spiritual journey is really dangerous. And especially if you're led to think of yourself as a spiritual master or teacher mm. or farther along the journey. Mm. You just said it. Right. Okay, but there is a level of truth to it. But don't be enticed by it, Richard. Don't be seduced by it. Don't, you've heard me say this, don't believe your PR too much. Mm. Or don't identify with it. Then you're in trouble. And you can't see the ways in which you're not a spiritual master at all feel a little bit like I'm turning into a broken record, but I'm just, I'm seeing themes that keep coming up for us where in many ways, it seems like the path of ascent is all about having power and control and attaining, whereas the path of descent is more of that power with Mm. communion model that we keep wanting to live into, more of that Trinitarian flow. So I wonder, Richard, if you could help us understand how this tenet names that our process is about unknowing and forgiving the ways that we do want to cling to certainty, to knowing, to power, to something to grab onto, to make sense of our world. To We're much less comfortable moving into our failures, our wounds, those places that we are growing. We'd rather not. We'd rather consider ourselves as, nope, I'm good. I'm arrived enough. I don't need to look at that. I don't need to fail. I don't need to see that mistake. So how does this tenet help us embrace unknowing and forgiving? You used a good word in there, power. And I don't think Jesus' message is about any one social issue. Racism, sexism, homophobia, militarism, consumerism, pick any of the isms that we're all caught up in. They're all undercut by a simple recognition that the ego wants power. Mm -hmm. And once you you see that your power needs are out of control, that they're not about truth, they're about control. Mm. And people in the early say, oh, I've got to do this to speak my truth to power, not realizing even in that, that's dangerous. Now you're the powerful one. And the power person is properly humiliated by your speaking truth to them. So where I gain confidence to talk that way is in the three temptations of Jesus, that Jesus himself has to face, I think it's Matthew 3, isn't it? 
He was led away by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's like a necessary being led. You've, but isn't that interesting that even the Spirit seems to, well, sometimes says driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. I hear the Spirit drives us into necessary temptation. For 40 days he fasted. In other words, he emptied himself out. That's path of descent again. At the end of them he was famished. The tempter approached him and said, and this is the primary temptation to make you doubt your divine ontological identity. If you are the Son of God, all three start with, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So for me, it's the temptation to seek the miraculous, the spectacular, the effective, the practical, what works, what immediately works. Give the poor bread. Then he took him to the holy city, set him on the parapet of the temple. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. So the misuse of Scripture itself for diabolical purposes. Huh? That the devil can quote Scripture. Wow, how can that be applied? Hmm. When Jesus quotes Scripture back to him. Then he took him. The third one is, that's religious power. The second, the third is political power. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. All these I will give you if you will only fall down and do me homage. You pay a big price for wanting political power. You almost have to bow down before all kinds of idols of popularity, deceit, till we're in the state we're in today, where deceitful language even becomes acceptable on both sides. It's an entire world of deceit. So in another place, as you know, Jesus calls Satan the father of, of lies. So that was probably more than you wanted for an answer, but Power is the real issue, and all of us have to discover whether we're on the victimizer side or the victim side. The victim can easily rise to, there's a power you can't question. I was victimized. So you can walk around like a victim the rest of your life in charge. You can't dare touch me. Permanent victimhood used now for your own self-aggrandizement. Mm -hmm. This is the world today. You know? Every one of the, the aggrieved groups has now found its way to use power. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think this still deserves a lot of analysis, how that's the foundational demon. Mm. Yeah. And if you don't have a path of descent, spirituality made clear in your mind and heart, you'll almost always fall into it. Mm. I was telling Paul, he dropped in my office early this morning, did you ever hear about the president of Uruguay, Pepe Molica? They say he's the, the poorest president in the world. He just does everything to model powerlessness, because he isn't a, a bona fide Christian or a bona fide capitalist, we pay no attention to him here in North America. If you can see the movie Pepe, I, oh, I'm in love with him right now. He's like, put Che Guevara, Nelson Mandela, and St. Francis together. And here's this sweet old man, he's 80 now. He just, he walks around his little village with his, with his three-legged dog. <laughs> and the very name of the movie, it's all in Spanish, by the way, with English subtypes, is A Superb Life. And you should see the crowds the last years of his presidency. He's now out of office. We're just adoration hmm. because Latin America isn't used to people who don't abuse power. Mm. I've always said the Catholic Church brought the gospel to Latin America, but it didn't bring justice, mm. any notion of justice. 
So when you have a president of a Latin American country really not just talk justice, but live justice. Oh, by the way, he was in solitary confinement for 10 years. Can wow. you imagine? Wow. And he talks about what that taught him. You've got to see the movie. Yeah. You really love it. I'd love the whole staff to see it. Wow. Pepe Molica. It's Pepe is short for Joseph, huh? I'm not sure. Oh, that's Italian. His father was Italian. His mother was Spanish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Another name for everything will continue in a moment. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. There's something about these experiences darkness, failure, relapse, death, woundedness. Every one of those experiences puts us in touch with powerlessness. That's right. And the transformative principle is not to stay identified in that place, not to stay, you know, we don't we don't create an ide- identification out of that, but that somehow touching in on that powerlessness and building on that last tenet that we just had in the last episode, it allows us to see the fallacy of the separate self mm-hmm. because good. it's almost like the egoic Very separate good. self that maintains that strong boundary of like, no, I've got this. I'm in control. Yeah. I'm on top. I can keep achieving and doing and succeeding. And those kind of end runs into the failure of our own uh, systems, salvation projects, as you call, mm-hmm. <laughs> call it, Richard, is what helps us recover a connection of emptying of powerlessness that actually draws us closer together. Because as I'm listening to you, Richard, each one of these experiences is really like when you are in darkness, when failure happens, when you face death, when you are deeply wounded, when you are in the midst of those experiences, that's when community really comes in. Yeah. That's when that mirroring happens, when when you people draw around you yeah, I feel like community can really only happen when you recognize how deeply you need one another. That's it. You know what I mean? Like I think Yes, thank you. Yeah. Often it comes out of that that desperate need that we are actually all in this together. Yes. And Richard, this is bringing up something that we talked a lot about last season with the the three different values that we focused on. How do you see those values of simplicity, devotion, and uh, public virtue in relationship to the path of descent? Wow. Well, the first thing that I'm thinking of, I don't know whether it's the right thing, is there all three of those values that I'd like to see us develop at the CAC are movements out of individualism, hmm. the breaking of the shell of, of, of myself being enlightened or myself being worthy, or we call it a sense of entitlement. Mm. And I think we run that risk at the CAC because we've got a lot of patterns that are very good. 
and we're all patting ourselves on the back for it. But uh, success in any form is dangerous. It really is. And we've got a lot of people looking up to us and admiring us and trying to imitate us. You know, one of the most subtle ways of holding power is to hold another person, our ideology, our idea in contempt mm. or unforgiveness, you know? That's standing on the high horse. Mm -hmm. That's standing on the top of the mountain, you know? By, I will not release you from your inferior state. Mm -hmm. You are like this. And, and we on the so-called left, which is where a lot of people place us, are very capable of that, but it's so well hidden. My main point is unforgiveness held on to is a power game. Can you think? Yeah. Yeah. Contempt of anything is a power game. I'm standing on my moral high ground. Who sees that till the middle of life? And to release the other person is, dang it, I don't want to release them. I want to hold them in their inferior state. You hurt me. Even a lot of trials we see anymore where I have to hold them accountable. Do you really have to? Yes, I have to do it so nobody else has to suffer what I have suffered. Maybe that's your motivation, but I doubt if it's your hold motivation. Mm. This is how deep working with the path of descent becomes. You just keep descending deeper and deeper into the forms of disguise. Mm. That is such powerful teaching. Mm -hmm. Just thinking about how easy it is to try to take a, a stance of moral superiority. Yeah, um, yeah and I've done it too often. How slippery that is. But I'm thinking about the path of descent and what I'm going to call the commodification of consumeristic contemplation. <laughs> Mouthful. Mm, but mm, but here's, mm. here's, what I, here's what I mean by that. Richard, if our spirituality is just about getting or having experiences, or having insights, rather than it costing us heartbreak and change and transformation and moving us toward values that do support the whole, is it to be trusted? Let me just be completely frank about it. It seems to me that in our time, there's this growing edge of having these mystical drug-induced experiences as like being somehow a very enlightened social acceptable activity and without slipping into that moral high ground as you said how do we discern what true mm. transformation yeah. is yeah. is it about having these experiences and insights and getting to these states or or is it something else like how do we know the fruits of the spirit and how to discern what the path of transformation looks like that's great that's what a spiritual director would ask there's an ambiguous nature to virtue, and there's an ambiguous nature to vice. Mm. And we were given the impression it wasn't ambiguous. I talk about this in the new book on evil, that we thought it was always very clear. But uh, you're making such a good point that you do need to experience something gratifying about virtue, or why would you go there, mm. you know? Why would you keep moving in that direction? So you don't want to take away the, the true blessing that virtuous action is, but it's always your attachment to it, your manipulation of it, your use of it for your own advancement. That's what pollutes it. Mm. And why even the Buddhists would say, you have to act for the sake of the action, not for the sake of the response. Mm. And, you know, if goodness is its own reward, well, I think we have every, every right to enjoy that reward. If vice is its own punishment, I think we need to suffer that punishment. Not that God is directly punishing us, but punished by our sins rather than for our sins. Mm. 
So I, I hope I heard you correctly, that you seem to be saying that there has to be something good about doing it right, right, which God expects us to appreciate. Mm-hmm. Huh? But it's also difficult because it seems like because we're such a consumeristic culture, that we turn it all about the good feelings, all about the good experiences, go. the that's transcendent experiences, the getting, the, getting, the mm-hmm. having. And that's where I feel like this growing social edge toward accepting like, oh yeah, spiritual experiences as consonant with drug-induced experiences. I don't know. I struggle with that insofar as I hear you saying, though, that, that the path of descent is the inclusion of the things we otherwise would rather not do. <laughs> you know, sure, sure. I'd rather not look at the darkness and deal with failure and relapse and mm-hmm. death and accept woundedness. I'd, l- I'd rather not move into those uncomfortable places. Yes. But I, I don't know if you've, if you've seen that too, Paul. It's, just, it's, a, it's very much a current in the current milieu to just look at the, the ecstatic state as the goal that, oh, yeah, just like have this really profound experience. And I think what, the thing I'm wrestling with is, well, what does that experience yield? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is it just to continually come back and want to have another really, you know, induced state? Or you know, One of my favorite lines from Carl Jung that we've brought up here, he says somewhere, be wary of unearned wisdom. There's something about that that connects the path of descent for me of being able to, to follow the threads of where that despair and woundedness takes you and the lessons that can become more embodied through the, that experience of descent. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, Richard, I mean, do you think like a good marker of any mystical experience would be, are the fruits of the Spirit present and sustained after that? Like, would that be a way to see whether, I mean... I don't want to get into nitpicking about what's authentic mystical experience and what's not, sure. but trying to think of a way to, to look at it in a, from a, a healthy standpoint. I think that's the only way at the end. The fruits of the Spirit, as listed at the end of Galatians, is at five, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. If you see that as the fruit of what you did, and you were able to do it with that energy, and you engendered it in others, not perfectly every time, then you can probably say you were acting according to the Spirit. That has to be subtly interpreted, but there's almost no other way to know. But then it gets more naked than that, that, well, I don't need to be convinced every step of the way that I'm right. Mm. Mm Now you perhaps know the quote I'm going to bring up because I've quoted it so much over the years. My friend, Therese of Lisieux, whoever is willing to serenely bear the trial, Mm. serenely bear the trial of being displeasing to herself, she used the feminine, that person... In that state of, I'm not pleasing to myself right now. It's like Anthony DeMello said, I'm an ass, you're an ass, what can you expect of an ass? You're that empty but that I, I'm not discouraged because I'm not perfect. Mm. Mm. Now, she called that her little way. Oh, there's a statue of her as you enter the great cathedral where, where she's buried. No, no, she's buried down at the, the convent. And she's holding up a book. Usually it's a man holding up a book. But here you have Teresa inviting her into the great, and it's a new order of Christianity. Her new and little way that we come to God by bearing our littleness Mm. with contentment. Yeah, what do you expect of a little nobody? Don't even use the word ecstatic at least for me, I'm just talking to myself, it's just I want to wake up and live each day feeling happy and good. Because look what I accomplished yesterday. Mm -hmm. I wrote a good daily meditation. (laughs) A million people read it. (laughs) When, When I don't have that satisfaction, it's just, oh, God, I'm a big phony. I don't get any ecstasies anymore, but I need them less and less. Mm. So it's, well, the Jesuits would say neither needing 
desolation, and no, neither being attracted. You'd have to give me the word you were trained by a Jesuit. <laughs> desolation nor consolation. Right. Yeah. When neither of them attract you. Oh, that's heroic. It's the little levels of feeling that we live off of, you know? And uh, her little way was genius. Yeah. It really was. When I had that experience that I've talked to you about of, of chains flying in all directions in my novitiate, I'm 19 or 20, I don't know which, early in the novitiate or late in the novitiate. It was after reading this marvelous book about called A Retreat with St. Teresa. That's why she's always been so important to me, that I knew her little way, as she herself called it, she said it'll never be popular, hmm. was the gospel. You know, <laughs> what else does Jesus teach when he starts his, his Sermon on the Mount with, blessed are the poor in spirit? This is not the prosperity gospel by any intimation. This is not a path of success or ascent. Blessed are the poor in spirit to know I'm a little shit. Really? <laughs> God, what freedom that is. <laughs> That's just good stuff. I, I think that line is so potent that you just quoted from Therese of the willingness, just that even that word, the willingness being whoever's uh, willing. Whoever's willing and how that does lead on the path of descent. That's right. It's a willingness. Yeah. Yeah. To serenely bear the trial. It is a trial. I discovered that quote. It isn't in her autobiography. It's in one of her letters hmm. to another nun. But in Scott Peck, is it people of the lie or is it the road less traveled? But he says, there's a lesser known Catholic nun in France. As a Protestant, he probably had vaguely heard of her. And he says, this one line would solve most psychological problems that people have. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> we're all fashioning a persona, trying to live up to it, trying to live down to it. But to serenely bear the trial of being a little shit, I hope that isn't offending you. It's offending my mother in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> she did correct me two different times where I used that word on early cassettes. and I came home and says, Dickie? I don't think you should use that word. And I said, why not? You're going to lose fans. <laughs> <laughs> She's protecting your persona. Mother wants her son to be successful. That serenely bearing the trial, I, I mm. really, really mm. appreciate that because mm. I think not just in the consumeristic culture of how people tend to prefer these ecstatic or positive or happy feelings or joyful feelings, but also in the ways that in contemplation, we often turn non-duality into or, or mystical union into an, a path of ascent. We turn path it into something that mm -hmm. we're trying good to... good feelings are the proof of Yes, or that yeah. I'm trying to achieve or gain or get to, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to the simplicity of... No, no, no. Non-duality is to serenely bear the trial. Mm, mm. Every word is well chosen. Right. Ugh, yeah. So good. Oh, did I finish it? Will be a pleasant place of shelter for Jesus. No. Ah. It's perhaps a, a very feminine, sweet way of talking. But she wanted to be a place where Jesus could abide. Wow. Mm. And she said, only by serenely bearing the trial of being empty, the Buddhist would say, uh -huh. Jesus can live there. Wow. Will be a pleasant place of shelter for Jesus. Wow. It's magnificent. Yeah. You know? And as a way as we think about how do we practice this theme of the path of descent, what kind of invitation would you have for those listening to be willing to serenely bear the trials to be a, a shelter for Jesus? You know, don't speak up, considering the character of American conversation today. Don't say the first thing that comes into your mind. I mean, I just see it in restaurants, and conversations are becoming louder and louder and more opinionated and more hysterical. There's no silence, there's no emptiness in people. They're 
too much conviction. What's that wonderful poetry quote from Yeats, the Irish, where the somebody, yes, you look it up, somebody lack all conviction? How uh, could I the forget? Most, the most passionate. Yeah. Yeah, I'll look it up. She'll find it. Um. It's just perfect, but it's, I'm finding it harder to go to noisy bars and restaurants. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. How did you find that so quick? <laughs> it's Google, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> the path of descent of information. <laughs> Read it one more time, okay. please. He says, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Mm. Yep. Ooh, I just, I just, I just went into my own world. path of descent no. with that that's one. Our world, oh. yeah. Oh, but you asked me something else. Then I quote a poet. What oh, that's about how we practice that. Oh, yeah. How and do we, we practice You were naming, it? taking a step back from the first thought. To hold our convictions and our talky-talky about those a little more lightly. Mm. When everything is a knee-jerk reaction to appear to be add something meaningful to the conversation and everything everybody's trying to get in. You fives and you nines are the best at that. Mm. I have my two siblings who are nines. <laughs> and you can just sit there and sort of let the rest of us hysterically state our case. And you don't need to be heard. Mm. One of my favorite nines who lived with me in household in fact, he in some ways looked like you, Paul. Hmm. I wonder whatever happened to John. Handsome man, I'm sure. Oh, very handsome. <laughs> we had a all-day workshop with the whole community, and they were all supposed to copy down what they wanted New Jerusalem to be 10 years from now. I was leading them through it, and it was moving very quickly, and, and John turned his in. I hope New Jerusalem never needs to be important. Hmm. And it was just like a big deflation. Of, mm -hmm. <laughs> if you would have seen all the boxes of, we got to change the city and change the church and change the world. I hope we never need to be important. Wow. That's, yeah, self-emptying. Hmm. I feel invited in what you just said, Richard, to live into that path of descent, that self-emptying with releasing stories, both of myself and mm -hmm. of the people I interact with, that embrace of not knowing and unknowing as a practice of the path of descent to not live out of those storylines mm -hmm. and yep. identifications, both for myself and for the people sure. that I interact mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Should take a few questions. Um, yeah, on yes. this let's do it. Let's do it. One of the most influential teachings for me at the Living School has been moving from a powerful God to a humble God. And Jim Finley's invitation to move from a having mentality to the practice of receptivity. The daily practice of receptivity has been a profound shift in how I engage with relationship and with presence. What I find is that it's easier to practice receptivity towards the gifts of life and relationship than it is to be receptive to darkness and failure, which is the path of descent that Richard teaches about. How do we learn to become receptive to our failures and diminishment without getting mired in despair? Thanks a lot. It must be a necessary question. Yeah, because we don't want to talk about a maudlin, martyr-complex spirituality. we got to distinguish from that reveling and being a nobody. I'm proud because I'm humble. Kind of. <laughs> so uh, maybe just saying it is enough. Be careful. That would be one of those subtle disguises we, t we keep talking about. I think I've reveled in being humble more than once. <laughs> and it takes a while to pull back from Richard and to see you're pretty proud of yourself that you don't drive a Cadillac, but you still drive a quite comfortable car, you know. You said it so well that I think you've given the answer already. Be careful. Don't go there. 
but you have to recognize the ease with which you do go there to stop yourself from going there. <laughs> it's all recognition. It's all awareness, awareness, awareness. Catching yourself playing these subversive games. And that is why we all say we need at special times, spiritual directors or confessors or partners or are real friends. Without it, we, we can persist in delusion for many years of our life. I'm thinking as well about how we were just talking about storylines. And I think in the times where I've experienced darkness or wounds, where I've slipped into despair, it's often because I've created a storyline. Mm. I've right. identified with it. I have allowed shame to say, oh, I am this mistake or I am this wound. I am this thing that happened to me. That powerful image of Jesus healing people and saying, you are not, you know, and I think Jim Finley says this, you are not what's been done to you. Yes. Mm -hmm. You're not your worst mistake. Mm -hmm. So just to, just to underline what you said, Richard, I think what helps me move out of that storyline of despair or that identification is community. It's yeah. love. It's the people who can say, we're with you in this, but you are not this. You are not this thing that's happened, or you are not this moment, or this mistake, or this failure. Yeah, we tend to write a script for a movie that we play out as our life with Ugh, the character yeah. already developed. Yeah. And mm -hmm. the damage that can do to us. I just want to echo something that you said that is really landing for me is just the subtlety that we need to to bring to how we interact with this descent that is such a it's a subtle art to know subtle when we're which, when we're leaning one way or another and not to just fully give over to that storyline or to whatever what feels like complete failure but the subtlety to know that there's a, a seed of of new life in there too thank you well you said it i don't need to add but you both introduced a word that it might be helpful to some people story and storyline. It is very fashionable in retreat settings and therapeutic settings to talk about people need to tell their stories. And they think just the telling of the story somehow makes it sacred. When in at least half the cases, it's a storyline that is lethal or they over-identify with and to keep telling it, you know, once you verbally tell something, you know, notice this after you go on a vacation and you always tell about this or that. It's emblazoned in your memory. That was what happened. Mm. So I understand this current language of life is about stories. Tell your story. But I'm saying if that story doesn't evolve in its telling, if you're using the same adjectives, the same nouns, the same places, you're probably into it too much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's probably self-serving. I offer that. I, I think it could help some people very much. Because yeah. just because it's a story that you told, don't let it be emblazoned on your very skin mm -hmm. <laughs> as my story. Regarding the path of descent is the path of transformation. Richard, it, it seems that the path of descent and thus transformation must include our acceptance of our own mortality. To praise from 27-year-old Holocaust victim Eddie Hillisum, where she talks of coming to terms with life, she says in part, the reality of death has become a definite part of my life. My life has been extended by death. By accepting destruction as part of life and no longer wasting my energies on fear of death or the refusal to acknowledge its inevitability. It sounds paradoxical. By excluding death from our life, we cannot live a full life. And by admitting death into our life, we enlarge and enrich it. I would uh, love to get your thoughts and comments. Thanks. Wow. I know you've already taught. I don't have anything I can improve on that. 
You perhaps have heard me say, I don't think you gave us your name, did you? I'm sorry. No, I don't think so. Uh, that one I felt for many years, one of the most significant books I ever read was Ernest Becker's The Denial of Death. It's a heavy read, but we were reading it back in the 60s, late 60s, was it? It won a Pulitzer Prize, and he just comes at that from every angle and makes his case. I mean, he goes so far as to say every culture creates itself as an immortality project, and every person does the same. Even the gravestone is a sign of that. <laughs> this is who I was. This is what I stood for. We're all creating our memorial <laughs> to immortalize ourselves. But if you want to take a, a single book on your next vacation, it isn't depressing. It's just being kicked with reality. <laughs> oh, oh, uh, how can you be so right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why a lot of the statues of our saints were shown, I don't like it, uh, holding the skeleton head, the skull. Mm -hmm. Live this life thing in the absolute realization that its other half is death. Mm -hmm. And that nothing can be sustained, nothing, nothing. <laughs> Even the sun must die, as Eckhart Tolle said after 9-11. It's the great truth speaker, the great truth speaker. And so all of the battles we're fighting, you do know that battle's going to change in three months or two months. or Now we have a presidency in our country. Literally changes the storyline every other day. And we've all been held captive by it for four years now. There's something demonic about this. That one human being has the ability to, so that the evils that he created last Tuesday are forgettable. Mm. Forgivable. Because there have been four evils since then. I don't have anything to compare it to. Mm. Mm -hmm. I really don't. And each, each evil is of a different character. So we forget and forgive the total deceitful thing he said to us last Tuesday, because there's this Tuesday's mm. deceitful message. This is troublesome. <laughs> troublesome at a level that we better be afraid of. Imagine if you're a teenager, you both have little kids. If they're growing up, getting those half-heard messages mm. that lying works. Mm. And it's all to enhance the ego, his ego in particular. Yeah. I'm not trying to be political. I'm trying to be deeply psychological and spiritual. How has this happened? And the only thing I can conclude is that other people who are playing the same game can't see through his game because it's working for them too. Otherwise, they would see through it seems to me. Only you, Richard, could, in a path of descent sort of way, recommend that we take a book about death on vacation, <laughs> on vacation. Right. so that we can have a long, loving look at the real, yeah. lest we get swept up by vacation times. Thank you. I do have one funny, quirky little recommendation of, um, I don't have many apps on my phone, but I have one called We Croak. And uh, five times a day, it pops up a little message that says, don't forget, you're going to die one day. As a way to live with that memory wow. of death. You're going to die? One day. Just, one day. It's just a reminder that, oh my that, goodness, that death Paul, is a part of life. You're and, a little teacher. Well, for me, it's really helpful <laughs> because it, as a nine, it kind of spurs me back mm -hmm. into like, this is life. It's not coming you're gonna tomorrow. Die this someday. is it right now. So it's just a little helpful little app for those who are... See? Oriented that way. <laughs> you're holding the skull of the saints. Yeah. Yes. yeah you're, to live your life in the presence of death. Mm. It, it withdraws your false loyalty to all these things that you get so uptight about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you all. Yeah, this is hard stuff to talk about, but thank you for staying in there. And and we're not trying to be morbid either. We're wanting to say some things that liberate you, liberate mm. you for love, not depress you. Mm. So I hope we haven't said it in a depressive way. Mm. As I look at the other people in this room, they're not depressed at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Richard. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.